Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Josephine Herivel was watching the BBC News when a story about forced marriages mentioned Freedom Charity as a British organisation that worked to help young women out of such situations. She memorised the hotline number that came up on screen. In October of 2013, she called the helpline on a mobile phone that had been snuck into her home and told the person on the other end that her housemate had been held captive for 30 years. At the time of Josephine's call, Katie Morgan Davies was 30 years old, and the period of her imprisonment was her entire life. She and the women she lived with believed that an invisible machine called Jackie could control household appliances, read their thoughts, and would incinerate them if they tried to escape the man that they called Comrade Bala, who was the covert leader of the world and, in fact, God himself. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. This podcast deals with subjects that are not suitable for all audiences. This episode will cover content that includes sexual abuse, physical assault, suicide, controlling behaviours and violence towards a minor. Please consider whether you'd like to continue listening on this basis. Born in Kerala, India, in 1940, Aravindan Balakrishnan moved to Singapore when he was nine years old, where his father was working at the British naval base. Aravindan was an academically gifted child, short in stature and only ever reaching the height of five foot three. He had curly dark hair and wore thick, square glasses. He attended the prestigious Raffles Institution and then the University of Singapore, obtained his Singaporean citizenship in 1960 and was awarded a British Council scholarship in 1963 to study at LSE, the London School of Economics. He moved to London at the age of 23 and soon became heavily involved in student politics there. He ran the Malaysian and Singaporean Students Forum, which was involved in many far-left student protests and saw communism as the answer to oppressive colonialist governments across Southeast Asia at the time. 
In London, Aravindan met Chanda Patney, a Tanzanian history student with an Indian background who was six years his junior, and they became engaged in 1967. In 1968, 22-year-old Aisha Abdul-Wahab left her home in Jalebu, Malaysia, on a scholarship to study surveying at the London School of Economics. Aisha was academically gifted, excelling at the elite private school she attended and becoming the first Malaysian woman to qualify as a quantity surveyor. Her sister Kamar described her to the Telegraph as a beautiful, docile and likeable person. She and her fiancé Omar Munir, who travelled to London with her, had a promising future. At LSE, Aisha joined MASS, the Malaysian and Singaporean Students Forum, where she met Aravindan and Chanda. In these circles, Aravindan had become known as Comrade Bala, though he was also often referred to as Chairman Ara. Omar became critical of Aisha's increasing political activism and her burgeoning devotion to Comrade Bala. When Aisha threw her engagement ring into the Thames, breaking things off with Omar, it was against the character that her sister Kamar had known back in Malaysia. A former supporter who was later expelled from the group by Aravindan told The Telegraph, quote, Bala had initiated the breakup of her relationship with Omar. If he felt someone was challenging him or they didn't toe the line, he would try to isolate them, and if they were in a relationship, he would try to break it up, end quote. Meanwhile, the formerly brilliant student was failing her exams as she became further drawn into Aravindan's political movement. In the 1970s, the Malaysian government let Aisha's family know that it had become aware of her political activities and would make it difficult for her to return to her home country. Chanda and Aravindan were married in October of 1971. The following may sound familiar to any listeners with a bit of socialist education or background. In 1972, the Communist Party of England, in brackets Marxist-Leninist, now known as the Revolutionary Communist Party of Britain, in brackets Marxist-Leninist, and not to be confused with the Communist Party of Great Britain, Marxist-Leninist, or the Communist Party of Britain, Marxist-Leninist, formed from the English communist movement, Marxist-Leninist. Aravindan was suspended from the tiny party in 1974 for, quote, conspiratorial and splittist activities, and so he formed his own minute faction, which he called the Workers' Institute of Marxism-Leninism Mao Zedong Thought. To save you and me a lot of bother, I'll call it the Institute or the Workers' Institute for most of this episode. A letter informing Aravindan of his suspension from the National Executive of the Communist Party of England, Marxist-Leninist, on September 2nd, 1974, begins with the quote, He who puts his ego against the forces of history will be crushed. It continues, quote, In this era of world revolution, to absolve oneself from all responsibility in terms of building and strengthening the party and leading the masses, and instead putting oneself on some heavenly and saintly cloud, and denouncing all who are participating in the class struggle to move the world forward is a criminal activity indeed. Aravindan refused to accept the letter, declaring he wouldn't take anything from what he now termed a fascist party. Nick Cohen wrote for The Spectator in November 2013, quote, 
Just as for the religious fundamentalist, the apostate is worse than the heathen, who is too ignorant to know better. So for the communist in this instance, the social democrat is worse than the fascist. According to Katie Morgan Davies' memoir, Caged Bird, Aravindan spent two days in St Albans Mental Hospital in 1974, though I'm uncertain whether this was before or after his suspension from the party. He would later tell his followers with glee, They thought I was mad. Shan Davies was born in 1953 and grew up in Wales. She went to boarding school at Cheltenham Ladies College before studying law at Aberystwyth University and then going on to postgraduate studies at the London School of Economics. Initially, she lived a fairly typical London lifestyle for a young woman in the 70s, her cousin Ellery Morgan recalling having a great time going out clubbing together. Then she came across Aravindan Balakrishnan, and something about his political ideology appealed to her. Shan had money, and she was happy to use what she had for the causes she believed in, eventually giving everything she had to the collective. She lost touch with her family, and at one point her mother even hired a private detective to help her figure out what was going on with Shan, to no avail. Shan was well entrenched in the Workers' Institute by then, and didn't want to be found. Josephine Herivel was born in 1956 and grew up in Belfast, Northern Ireland. She was the daughter of John Herivel, renowned for his work at Bletchley Park on breaking the Enigma Code during World War II alongside Alan Turing. Josephine was better known as Josie and was a brilliant young violinist who won awards for her performances. She moved to Devon for college in 1973 and then went on to study at the Royal College of Music in London. She says that her parents were very right-wing and she was interested in a different kind of politics when she came across Aravindan at a meeting. She told the Belfast Telegraph that while she was studying music in London, quote, I was very depressed and I didn't know where my life was going. I really wasn't happy. I know I had a good career ahead of me, but I wasn't happy. Josie said that the collective rescued her and gave her a reason to live. On February 1st, 1976, Aravindan was involved in an altercation with some neighbours who were having a loud party. In her memoir, Katie Morgan Davies recounts what she was later told about the incident. Quote, Bala had fought a most heroic battle with the upstairs neighbours, fascist agents who were rowdy and always causing trouble for AB, just as the BFS, that's the British fascist state, had asked them to. After a night of raucous parties, Bala had brandished a meat cleaver at them. End quote. Apparently one of the young men had managed to pull his hand away from the banister just before Aravindan brought the cleaver down in an attempt to chop it off at the wrist. For this, Aravindan spent two months in jail. 
Also in 1976, Aravindan, Chanda and their small group of followers set up the Mao Zedong Memorial Centre in a large Victorian building on Acre Lane in Brixton. It housed a bookshop with political literature and the administrative office as well as the gender-segregated sleeping quarters of what was now called the Workers' Institute of Marxism-Leninism Mao Zedong Thought. Stephen Frank Rainer's 1979 PhD paper, The Classification and Dynamics of Sectarian Forces of Organisation, Grid Group Perspectives on the Far Left in Britain, for University College London, quotes the organisation as saying they chose Brixton for building a stable revolutionary place as it is the worst place in the world. Stephen Rayner also says, quote, The Workers' Institute claims an absolute monopoly of truth as the only correct upholder of the line of the Communist Party of China in the imperialist heartlands, end quote. Stephen Rayner's thesis studied the dynamics of various far-left political groups, and in examining the setup of the Workers' Institute, he found that there was no hierarchy in the organisation, yet Aravindan was clearly its leader. Quote, When disciplinary action is taken against any member of the institute, the sanction is almost invariably expulsion. Balakrishnan has spent several short periods in prison on remand and on minor theft charges. Upon his release from one such period, he initiated expulsions against three of the members who had provided the leadership during his absence from the centre. It seems reasonable to regard these expulsions as measures designed by Balakrishnan to re-establish his hold over the organisation by using the only available effective sanction against his opponents. End quote. Members of the Institute were often seen leafleting around Brixton. In the BBC documentary The Cult Next Door, a former Trotskyist spoke of taking their leaflets in the 70s, then going to the pub and laughing about their content with his own comrades. They forewarned of the coming days when Chairman Mao would liberate the UK from its fascist government and the population would live under communist Chinese rule. This was apparently due to happen at the end of 1977. What did happen in 1977 was that Aravindan was stripped of his Singaporean citizenship by the government there, who suggested that he was plotting to overthrow Singapore's leader, Lee Kuan Yew. Stephen Rayner spoke to Institute members in early 1978 and asked what had happened with Aravindan's prediction. He was informed that Chinese satellites and technology had become so advanced that they had in fact taken over at the allocated time, but the Chinese government wanted the people to experience their own feelings of liberation by going through the struggle anyway, so they would continue to pull the strings from afar while the struggle continued. In Stephen's PhD paper, he described the daily group activities for members as high in frequency involving meetings, leafleting, and work in the centre's bookshop. He wrote that there were 25 members in 1979, though the core was more like 13 people who lived at the centre, whilst others lived in co-resident groups in the general vicinity. At the centre, men and women slept separately, as Aravindan was against sexual relations between them, and members were instructed to only go out in pairs. At some point in 1978, the centre was raided by police and 14 Institute members were taken into custody. 
Aravindan and Chanda both served jail time for assaulting a police officer, and the centre was closed down. After this, the group went underground and were no longer seen leafleting on the streets of Brixton. The core members of the Institute initially moved into a squat and were then granted subsidised housing by Lambeth Council, moving around numerous council properties in South London over the following decades. Aravindan used a lot of acronyms in his group. They were the CC, or Communist Collective. He was referred to as AB when he wasn't Comrade Bala. The BFS was the British fascist state that he would eventually usurp, but in the meantime was out to get him. He liked his followers to KQ, which meant keep quiet, so that the spies of the BFS couldn't overhear too much. Chris Help was his training method for the collective, and stood for Continued Revolution in Stages and Heavenly Eternal Life Program. Probably the most reported acronym was one that would be introduced later, Jackie. Jackie stood for Jehovah, Allah, Christ, Krishna, and Immortal Iswaran, Eknath Iswaran being a spiritual leader from Aravindan's birthplace of Kerala. Aravindan told the collective that Jackie was an electronic satellite warfare machine created by the People's Liberation Army of China, and that it had incredible power. On a large scale, Jackie could create natural disasters. On a small scale, it could control household appliances and Jackie could inflict SHC, or Spontaneous Human Combustion, upon any one of the CC members at any time. Aravindan's predictions about communist China overtaking Britain had evolved somewhat after going underground, with this smaller group who were becoming more loyal to him directly. He now taught his followers not just that he would one day rule the world, but that he actually already was the ruler of the world, Just currently he had to operate covertly. Any day now he would become the overt ruler of the world, and they were very lucky to be the first few and the inner circle who already recognised his leadership. Eventually this leadership would extend to him being understood within the Institute to be God. In 1979, Chanda fell into a coma due to complications resulting from her diabetes and spent several weeks in hospital. During this period, Aravindan seemed to become particularly close to Shan. It would later come out that he had begun sexually assaulting another of the women in the collective during his wife's absence. Following the hospitalisation, he would send Chanda and her sister Shoba away on errands when he wanted time alone with the other women. By late 1982, Shan was showing signs of pregnancy. Aisha asked her whether she was pregnant, and Shan told her that it was just gas trapped in her body. Then on January 7, 1983, Shan gave birth to a baby girl. Chanda was enraged by the pregnancy and wouldn't acknowledge the child, though Aravindan told her the baby was the result of electronic warfare. 
Aravinda named her Prem Malpinduzi, Prem being a Sanskrit word for love, and Malpinduzi a Swahili word meaning revolution. Prem would later choose the name Katie for herself, and I'll continue to use her chosen name. Upon Katie's birth, Aravindan initiated something he called Project Prem. The project was about bringing up this revolutionary child in a completely different way. The women were to show Katie no affection. She would not be told who her parents were, and she would be brought up collectively in a rejection of the nuclear family unit. Katie was never to be left alone, and even at night time, as she grew older, one of the women would always sleep by her side though they were not allowed to touch or cuddle her even if she was upset or reached for them. She would be unburdened from the obligations of friendship and better able to serve Aravindan with the lack of conflicting attachments. She was dressed in masculine clothes and her hair cut short. On top of this, Katie was told that she was at great risk of being kidnapped and killed by the BFS. This would be a way of getting to Aravindan, who they were constantly trying to destroy. Katie was therefore rarely allowed out of the house, unless there was a council worker visiting who she needed to be kept away from, and was told not to go near the windows. She could never attend school, nor see a doctor. The collective was told that NHS stood for Never Help Self, and that the DR of Doctor really stood for Death Restorationist. If she got sick, she was told to concentrate on her devotion to Aravindan, and she would get better. If she didn't improve, he'd often try beating her instead, as the continued illness was proof that she mustn't have been focusing hard enough. Katie and the women in the collective were taught that everyone outside was an enemy, and the only people to be trusted were the comrades inside the institute. There were rotors for all chores. Aravindan had a particular dislike of white people, who he called ugly dirty whites. Aravindan was to be treated with the utmost respect at all times. He had an afternoon nap, so everyone had an afternoon nap. When he entered the room, everyone was to stand. The first serving of any food was his, and he expected unbroken eye contact when he was speaking. He was, of course, not included on the chore rotor. By this point in time, there were ten people living in the collective, which was often housed in a fairly small flat. They were Aravindan and his wife Chanda, Chanda's sister Shoba, who was a wheelchair user, Shan, Josie, Aisha, another woman originally from Malaysia named O Kareng, Katie, and two more women who Katie refers to in her book as Leanne and Cindy. They have chosen to keep their real names out of the media so I'll also use the names that Katie does. Leanne had met Aravindan at a protest march in 1976, and was very taken with him and his ideology. She believed him when he said that she and the others needed to be scrubbed of their bourgeois lifestyle and culture, and willingly accepted his teachings. Cindy, like Aisha and O, had come to London from Malaysia in order to study nursing. She was staying at the Mao Zedong Memorial Centre when it was raided in 1978 and spent time in jail along with Aravindan and Chanda. Leanne and Cindy both worked jobs outside of the collective, unlike the other women. They handed over all of their earnings to Aravindan and had their finances controlled by him. 
Chanda and Shobha were at the top of the pecking order after Aravindan and had to be obeyed and agreed with second to Comrade Bala. Katie felt a particular hatred from Chanda, who she says treated her as if she wished she were dead. O had the primary task of caring for Shobha, and Chanda and Shobha's family were allowed to visit occasionally, which was a thrilling event for Katie, as she would be taken out because Aravindan didn't want the family to know about her. Katie always wondered why it was okay for Chanda and Shobha to maintain a relationship with their family when no one else was allowed to. Family and friends were said to be the old world, to be discarded by the few embracing the new world inside the collective. Katie found her daily life mind-numbingly boring. If a landlord or plumber visited, it was hugely exciting as a distraction from the usual routine. The changing of the clocks for daylight savings was a twice-yearly highlight for her. Morning and night, there were endless sessions of so-called discussions, which generally sounded much more like monologues from Aravindan on whatever subject took his fancy at the time. Leanne or Cindy might be exhausted after a full day at work on their feet, but they would have to stand and maintain unblinking eye contact with Aravindan as he spoke, often for hours at a time. The women were made to recite A.B.'s truths regularly, which were A.B. is nature, nature is A.B. India is the world, and the world is India. A.B.'s knowledge is the truth, and the truth is A.B.'s knowledge. A.B.'s Chris help is the key, and the key is A.B.'s Chris help. The final truth was one they had to KQ, or keep quiet about, and mouth silently rather than say aloud. But it was a truth all the same. A.B. is God. God is A.B. Aravindan told the women that major world events were directly related to goings-on in their home, which he termed synchronizations. On January 28, 1986, the NASA Space Shuttle Challenger broke apart just over a minute into its tenth flight, killing all seven crew members on board. Aravindan told the collective that this had happened because Challenge R referred to those in the house who had been challenging him, Ara, and that their vying with him was why the explosion created the letter Y in the sky. On January 17, 1995, the Great Hanshin Earthquake Disaster, also known as the Kobe Earthquake, hit the southern part of Japan's Hyogo Prefecture, killing over 5,000 people and devastating much of Kobe and its surrounds. While Shoko Asahara was citing the destruction as evidence that his apocalyptic predictions were on their way in Japan's Omshinrikyo sect, have a listen to episode 3 of season 1 if you haven't already for more about that one, Aravindan was telling his followers that the earthquake had occurred because a pizza delivery person had mistakenly knocked on God's door, being his door. The two kanji characters that form the word Kobe translate as God and door. Aisha told the BBC about her understanding of Aravindan's concept of synchronizations, quote, I just accept it because it's beyond my comprehension. These synchronizations were another source of great guilt for Katie and the followers. If only they could be better, they wouldn't have the blood of other people on their hands.
One thing Katie took some solace in was reading. She was taught to read and write by the women in the Institute, as Aravindan preferred silence whenever possible in the home. If something was important, the comrades were told to write it down and KQ. They were also expected to keep diaries detailing each day, right down to their bowel movements. Meals were always eaten without any conversation, as the BFS could be listening in on them at any time. Reading material was limited to approved texts, but Katie would read whatever newspaper articles and books she could manage to get her hands on. Sometimes the daily discussions would take the form of criticism or attacking of one of the women, at which point the others were encouraged to join in so that they could help their comrade in her self-improvement. Even from a young age, Katie could be on the receiving end of this as well, and developed a nervous giggle as an involuntary response. In Caged Bird, Katie recounts instances of each woman being beaten over the years, of many occasions where one would have blood trickling from a nostril or an ear. Aisha told the BBC that Aravindan was fine with one or two questions, but if he felt the answer should already have been apparent, a slap to the face would usually be forthcoming, if not worse. Aisha also told the BBC that she knew she was being brainwashed, but understood from Aravindan that this was necessary to her development. Quote, Our brains, they were dirty. They had to be washed of all ideas. When you want to build a new world, you can't bring the old into it, so we had to chip away at the old and fill the void with new ideas. Most beatings that weren't the direct result of a question were from one woman informing Aravindan about the misdemeanours of another. Each was fiercely trying to prove greater loyalty to him than the others, which was encouraged, and if they were getting along too well with one another, they'd be punished for forming an anti-party clique. Josie today denies ever being hit or witnessing anything like this occurring, but Katie claims that beatings could be severe, and if a comrade tried to intervene, the woman on the receiving end would only get it worse, so all they could do was look on. They might be hit with Aravindan's hands, his slipper, a ruler, or a big wooden broomstick. Quote, The beatings were painful, so painful. He'd hit me again and again on the same spot. He often beat me so hard his own hands would bruise. Look how you've hurt me, he would cry. He would say how much it pained him to hurt somebody he loves. End quote. With every beating, the feeling of self-hatred intensified. When Katie was on the receiving end, because she was taught that it was always her fault, and with the comrades only ever agreeing with Aravindan that she was bad, she says, My wickedness was an incontrovertible fact, as much a part of me as my shadow. Leanne announced that she was leaving in April of 1988. Aravindan was furious, and he had some of the other women hold her down while he hit her repeatedly in the face with his fists. She had to take time off work as a result of her injuries. Then three months later, in July, Leanne did manage to leave, but she only made it as far as Southampton, where she found herself at a loss as to what to do with herself, and ended up back at the collective once more. It can be difficult to understand the process of leaving a situation like this. 
When the doors aren't locked, from the outside it seems like it should be an easy decision to walk right out of them. America's National Domestic Violence Hotline says that it takes on average seven attempts for a woman to leave a violent relationship, for a variety of reasons that can include fear for one's safety, financial dependence, fear of rejection by the friends and family you may have isolated yourself from, shame and embarrassment, and also fear of deportation. The former supporter of Aravindan, a Malaysian male who asked to remain anonymous, told The Telegraph, quote, If your self-confidence is being chipped away all the time, self-esteem chipped away, you feel intellectually inferior, and you are dependent on group living, you're as good as being in prison. Leanne treated Katie with a little more tenderness than the others in the collective, and sometimes even found ways to help the young girl have fun, turning out all the lights so she could ride down the hallway of the flat on her bicycle in the dark, since she couldn't ride outside or telling her stories about work at night time when she was the project prem bedmate for the evening. When Aravindan got wind of Katie's fondness for Leanne, the two were denounced and punished for forming an anti-party clique. Finally, in 1989, Leanne managed to leave for good. She told nobody about her ordeal until many years later, and it would eventually come out in court that on top of the physical assault, she had been repeatedly sexually assaulted by Aravindan as well. Cindy, who was still working as a nurse, managed to leave the institute in 1992. She suffered permanent hearing loss as a result of one beating she'd endured. She organised hospital accommodation for herself and left the flat for a night shift, never to return. Cindy would also later tell her story in court of being raped by Aravindan and of one time being punched in the stomach when she refused his advances. Chanda later told the Times, quote, If they were genuinely in fear, they could have left at any time. They both went out to work every day. One night in December of 1996, Katie heard a commotion downstairs at the council flat they were now living at in Hearn Hill. She went down with her minder for the night and came upon Shan with her hands and feet tied and a gag in her mouth. Apparently Shan had been trying to leave to visit her parents for Christmas and Aravindan wasn't having it. Then on Christmas Eve, Aisha heard a scream from the upstairs bathroom. Shan had fallen from the second-story window and was taken to King's College Hospital in a coma. Katie believes that Shan probably tried to take her own life in despair. Aravindan said that she fell after taking a bath, though at that time of year in London it would have been very cold, so unlikely that she would have had the window open by chance. The police were never called about the incident, either by the collective or the hospital. Shan was left paralysed below the neck, and on the 3rd of August, 1997, after spending seven months in hospital, she died from her injuries. Shan's family had never been told she was in hospital, and only found out after her death. Her cousin Ellery Morgan attended the morgue to identify her body, and no mention was made to her at the time of Shan having a daughter. At a subsequent inquest, the coroner returned an open verdict and the police felt they didn't have enough evidence to launch a criminal investigation. 
ITV went to the collective's flat in South London and waited until the door was opened to a milk delivery. The film crew asked to speak to Comrade Bala. In their news footage, three women can be seen telling the reporter that they don't want to talk. Josie says repeatedly, You're part of the fascist state, before Aisha shuts the door on them. Katie had been allowed to accompany Aravindan to see Shan at the hospital on a number of occasions, and had started to suspect that Shan was her mother when she'd seen her name on her birth certificate. But the only thing she'd ever managed to say to her was, Bye, Mama, once, to which Shan replied, Bye, baby. It's a memory that Katie still treasures today. Once Shan had passed away, the then 14-year-old Katie found her life became a bit easier. Shan had been the strictest enforcer of Aravindan's rules, and the most likely to inform on her. Perhaps she felt she needed to work harder to prove her loyalty was to Aravindan, as Katie's birth mother. Then in 2001, O fell in the kitchen and hit her head. Aisha told the BBC that O was asking for medical attention, but Aravindan said that she shouldn't need it for something so minor. Katie told The Guardian that O had previously been experiencing giddiness and tiredness, but that Aravindan had of course refused her a trip to the doctor. In fact, O had suffered a stroke and passed away the next day. The coroner found that she had died of natural causes and the police were never notified. In 2002, at the age of 19, Katie managed to convince Aravindan to let her read Harry Potter. Aravindan had watched the first film's trailer and saw himself in the main character, which was why he allowed Katie to read the J.K. Rowling series. Then with The Lord of the Rings, he identified himself as Aragorn, and so Katie was allowed to read Tolkien's series as well. Aravindan's hubris worked against him, when in consuming these stories, Katie found herself interpreting him as more of a Voldemort or a Sauron, and herself as the underdog hero, who might be able to find a way to overcome her Dark Lord. In spite of all of Aravindan's warnings, Jackie didn't destroy Katie for having such thoughts. The seeds of her doubt continued to grow. Three years later, at the age of 22, Katie built up her courage, swallowed her terror, and ran out the back door of the flat and onto the street. Full of exhilaration and fear, she managed to tell someone on the street that she had run away from home and ask for their help. They told her that she should go to the police station. Katie made it to Streatham Police Station, where a civilian front desk officer convinced her to call her house. Aravindan came straight to the station reassured the officer that all was fine and would be looked after, and took Katie back to the collective. The years following her first escape attempt were bleak for Katie, and she felt herself fall into depression. Eventually, she decided on a new tactic, 
to try to be more of a friend to Josie, who had started bearing the brunt of a greater chore load as Chanda's sister Shoba had been diagnosed with cancer and required further care, and O was no longer around. Katie offered Josie a sympathetic ear. In 2011, John Herivel passed away. His obituaries only mentioned two daughters instead of three, and Josie had been cut out of his will. Meanwhile, Josie had slowly softened more towards Katie over the intervening years. Then, in late 2013, Katie began suffering from dramatic weight loss. She was, of course, unable to go to a doctor to find out what was wrong. As she was getting sicker and sicker, she and Josie saw a story about forced marriages on the BBC News that interviewed the founder of Freedom Charity, a magistrate and human rights campaigner named Anita Prem. Perhaps the surname she shared with Katie's given name was a sign. They memorised the hotline number on the screen. Katie begged Josie to call, and to tell the charity that she was being held against her will, and had been for 30 years. Josie had seen two of her comrades die by this point, and she didn't want the same thing to happen to Katie. She bought a cheap mobile phone with change she'd been secretly keeping aside after doing the grocery shopping and snuck it into the Brixton Council flat where they were now residing. On October 18th, 2013, Josie phoned the helpline. Anita Prem told The Telegraph that Josie had started to have second thoughts immediately after calling, questioning whether she was doing the right thing. Over more phone conversations, it took a lot of convincing for her to believe that the outside world could hold something better for the women. Josie also wanted reassurance that nothing bad would happen to Aravindan. The Freedom Charity had immediately contacted the police, and the case was passed on to the Human Trafficking Unit on October 21st. Over the next few days, they worked out a plan with not-for-profit organisation the Palm Cove Society, which assists with organising housing for vulnerable people. On the morning of Friday, October 25th, Yvonne Hall and Gerard Stocks of the Palm Cove Society were waiting outside the Brixton flat to help Katie and Josie exit safely, with the police looking on in case anything should go wrong. They later returned to the flat for Aisha, and the three women were taken into protective custody. Katie was treated for undiagnosed diabetes and was also diagnosed with chronic post-traumatic stress disorder. Four weeks later, in a dawn raid, Aravindan and Chanda were arrested. The press was reporting on the story as a slavery case, with the couple being questioned about holding the three women in domestic servitude. In November 2013, Anita Prem of Freedom Charity told The Telegraph that, quote, the women are at the beginning of a very long and hard journey. Perhaps this journey was too difficult for Josie, whose loyalty returned to her comrade Bala. She has since appeared in the media on numerous occasions denying that she was ever beaten, sexually assaulted or held against her will. Katie believes it is too hard for her to admit to herself that the many years of her life she dedicated to the collective were wasted. Also in November 2013, Aisha's sister Kamal was reunited with the younger sibling she hadn't seen for 46 years. 
Kamal was overjoyed about the reunion, though it was also bittersweet for all the years they had missed. Their mother had been heartbroken when she lost all contact with her brilliant daughter, and it had been her dying wish to see Aisha again. Seven of the twelve siblings had also passed away over the years. Kamar had her home in Malaysia all set up for Aisha to return with her, to live a quiet life and get to know the next two generations of the family and reconnect with those she once knew. But Aisha's life was now in the UK. She could no longer speak Malay, and after so many years, her birth country didn't feel like home anymore. She remained in supported accommodation, speaking with her sister each week over the phone to catch up on life, and hoping to visit sometime soon. Chanda was eventually released without charge, whilst Aravindan faced 16 charges relating to crimes alleged by Katie, Leanne and Cindy. They were one count of false imprisonment and of child cruelty, four counts of rape, seven counts of indecent assault, and three counts of actual bodily harm. He denied all charges. Aravindan told Southwark Crown Court in November of 2015 all about Jackie, which he maintained was real, while the prosecution saw Jackie as a method he used to control his followers. Aravindan insisted that Jackie had caused the Challenger disaster, and also claimed it was responsible for Jeremy Corbyn being elected as Labour leader. When his defence barrister asked where the machine was, Aravindan said, quote, I can't tell you because it might put you to sleep. He also told the court that Jackie, quote, has got unbelievable control. It can pull your head out from your body, end quote. He testified that while he had had sexual relations with the two women accusing him, it had been fully consensual and initiated by them. The court also heard that a psychiatric report had found Aravindan to be suffering from narcissistic personality disorder and was preoccupied with fantasies of power. Leanne said during her testimony, quote, I believed that he could kill us and that no one would know, the others would cover it up. Detective Sergeant Paul Wiggett testified about the thousands of diary entries he'd read over including one of Katie having been beaten 63 times by the age of four. In December 2015, Aravindan Balakrishnan, now 75 years old, was found guilty of all but two charges, one of the indecent assault counts and one of the actual bodily harm charges. Josie yelled out in court after the verdict, You're sending an innocent man to prison. Shame on you. In early 2016, he was sentenced to 23 years in jail. Katie told The Guardian that Josie, quote, wants to serve her abusers. Her dream now is to go back and serve Chanda, who treated her worse than a dog. I feel sad for her because she is a good person underneath. End quote. Scotland Yard Detective Chief Superintendent Tom Manson told the media, quote, it seems extraordinary that Balakrishnan could command such control over so many people. However, all of the victims have told us in great detail that they very much believed his claims of power and greatness and the threats he made. Gerard Stocks told the BBC that he thought two of the three women he'd helped out of the flat were still scared that Jackie would take revenge on them at any time.
Katie chose her new name, drawing inspiration from Katy Perry's lyrics to her song Raw. Originally only known in the press as Rosie or Fran to protect her identity, she chose to go public under her new name, telling the Press Association, quote, I love that song. It is about not being put down, coming back, standing up for yourself. I've been a non-person all my life, and now is my chance to be myself. As soon as she could, Katie sought out Shan's family. She was devastated to find out that she was too late to meet her grandmother, Sari, who had passed away in 2005, the same year as Katie's first attempted escape, never knowing of Katie's existence. She did find Shan's cousin, Ellery Morgan, now a retired teacher in her 60s, and the two have become close. Ellery told Katie all about her mother before she had joined the Workers' Institute, and that she had been a nice person. The thought of what kind of a mother Shan might have been under different circumstances is a difficult one for Katie to bear. Katie took Ellery's surname to hyphenate with Davies in recognition of the real family she now had. Katie chooses to focus on the positive and take advantage of her freedom. She lives in a flat in Leeds and is studying, having achieved her GCSEs with good grades. She told the BBC's Newsnight in April of her feelings towards Aravindan now, quote, I was very angry with him for having deprived me of my life, basically, but then I realised in time that the anger was only harming me and was making me ill. She prefers to channel Nelson Mandela, telling the Sunday Express, quote, We must abandon those emotions or we will remain imprisoned. Katie doesn't rule out forgiving Aravindan in the future, but no longer yearns for him to be a real father to her as she once did. Quote, Once I had escaped, it was easy to see him for who he really was, a pathetic, scared, narcissistic, delusional bully. Josephine Herevel maintains that Aravindan's sentence is a huge injustice. Today she campaigns for his freedom, and is still devoted to the man she refers to as her teacher, saying that the only thing that traumatised her was the reaction she experienced outside of the collective. She told The Telegraph that nobody would listen to anything she said, that she was never a slave, and that she only ever left to help Katie find another situation. She herself didn't escape but always planned on returning. To date, Aravindan has not shown any remorse for his crimes. Katie Morgan Davies published her memoir, Caged Bird, earlier this year. Her account of the first 30 years of her life is harrowing to read, but she herself is incredibly inspiring. In spite of her highly controlled upbringing, Katie had such a strong sense of right and wrong, and managed to find a way to get out, even though it must have been a terrifying prospect. She continues to have such a positive outlook on the life she is now taking charge of, and told the Palm Cove Society in a case study for their website that she is passionate about human rights, supports Amnesty International, and hopes to be a counsellor one day. She's still working on her social anxiety and fear of saying the wrong thing, plus she moves slowly after the decades cooped up with little exercise but says that Yvonne and Gerard have taught her, quote, how to make decisions, manage money and shop, use public transport, and how to walk down the street safely and navigate from A to B. They helped her learn many general life skills that she was lacking and that she continues to build on each day. 
Katie told Julia Rhodes of the Sunday Express in April, quote, Every day in the house felt like a month. Now it is the other way round. The world is so exciting. Sometimes I still look out of the window and realise I can go out. I am totally free. If you'd like to discuss this group, your own experiences, sects in general, or anything else about the podcast, we have a new Facebook group for this purpose. I'll be there to give you any extra insight I have from my research, and I'd love to chat further with you. You can find the group via ltaspod.com forward slash Facebook group. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult, or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via www.icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at www.iasp.info. Let's Talk About Sects is researched and presented by me, Sarah Steele. Sound design and music is by Joe Gould. All information sources are listed on our website at ltaspod.com please consider giving us a quick review, following us on Facebook and Twitter, and supporting the creation of this independent podcast at patreon.com forward slash ltaspod, or by buying some merch at ltaspod.com. Thanks for listening, and hope you can join me again next episode. In court cases that end in a conviction, victims and their families are often allowed to make an impact statement, a statement of record of what they had before the crime and what they were left with after. But for unsolved crimes, crimes that don't end in a conviction, or serious life-altering events that aren't crimes at all, there is nowhere for the victims or their families to speak. Impact Statement is a new podcast that talks to victims and their families about life before, during, and after a life-changing event. Impact Statement combines compelling narration with interview clips to give a clear retelling while allowing those who have been affected the most to speak. Impact Statement can be found in Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. I'm Javier with Pretend Radio, and this season, I'm embedding myself in a cult. Throw him to the ground and get his devils out! Forgive us, Jesus! Forgive us, Jesus! Families will turn on each other. Let me make it really clear. I am Jamie's mother, but what he says 
is lies. Babies will be ripped away from their parents. It, it's hurtful to see them and know that their lives could have been much different in a, in a home outside of there. We're not letting go of God's will with each other. And the powerful? Well, they'll be held accountable. Um, as a district attorney, it's probably better for me not to comment. <laughs> and why is that? Why is that? Survivors are not holding back, and the church is not backing down. Many in the media have tried to get in front of the accused cult leader, Jane Whaley, and have failed. We have asked you to leave. But somehow, I got in. How are you, sir? Yeah, yeah um, I'm here to speak with Jane Whaley. She invited me to service today. Yeah. This season, we're going deeper into the Word of Faith Fellowship than ever before. This story is on a collision course, and it's not going to end well. Why would anybody want to harm him? Sometimes we hurt other people by hurting people they love. Pretend Radio, Season 3, The Prophet. What's the- 